This is episode 44 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Patrick Smithick. Patrick has been working with horses all of his life. At the age of 15, he began riding for his father, A.P. Patty Smithick, the legendary Hall of Fame steeplechase jockey. He worked his way through college by exercising thoroughbreds and riding steeplechase races at major East Coast tracks and at hunt meets from South Carolina to New York State and also in the Midwest. Patrick has won awards for the writing of newspaper features, short stories, and magazine pieces while working as a Chesapeake Bay waterman, newspaper reporter, and teacher of English, creative writing, and medieval history. He holds a BA and an MLA from John Hopkins University, an MA from Hollins College, where he met his wife, it was love at first sight, and an EFM from the University of the South. Patrick lives with his wife, Ansley, on the 10-acre farm where he was raised in Moncton, Maryland. He writes every morning in the refurbished milking parlor of his barn, looking out at his two thoroughbreds and one very intelligent miniature donkey, who at feed time pushes his nose against the window of the writing room while stamping his feet. Most afternoons, Patrick hops on retired steeplechaser Riderwood and goes for a cross-country ride. Patrick is the author of the award-winning Racing Trilogy, including Racing My Father, Flying Change, and Racing Time. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice, and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. Today, it is my honor to have Patrick Smithick with me today. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Carly. How are you doing? I'm great, and you. I am so excited to make your acquaintance. Our, our good mutual friend and fellow author, Lori Bergley, introduced us to each other, and, and I know that you spend a little bit of time with her there in Maryland. You're like, you're a local celebrity, and, and she's so excited for this interview. <laughs> Is she, hopefully, she's going to come over when uh, the weather gets good and go for a ride with me soon. Oh, so jealous. So jealous of that. That is, in uh, Maryland is beautiful. I actually uh, was there for an American Horse Publications conference two years ago, and it, we got to see the cross-country courses and just how beautiful Maryland is. And, and I'm so excited to talk to you about, about your local farm and, and more about Maryland. So how I love to start these interviews off is, is understanding how authors uh, have gotten into horses, how their love affair with horses began, and you, you have quite a history with horses. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with horses? Sure. I think of, uh, when you said that, I think of an image of myself when I was about a year old or maybe nine months, and I'm up on this famous horse called Niji. He was a great steeplechase horse. And uh, so my father rode Niji. He was a champion steeplechase horse uh, three years in a row in the 50s, and my father was a steeplechase jockey and my mother was a really good rider, rode in the show ring and fox hunted and trained ponies and horses. So when I was growing up, I uh, 
I had some uh, a great opportunity. I rode a lot of ponies. Mom sort of had a pony business going. And we'd get these young ponies and we'd make them and, and I'd turn them either into fox hunters or show horses or quiet horses for hopefully we'd quiet them down for, for people to ride. And she also taught riding, but mainly people would come over and we'd just tack up all the ponies and five or six, seven of us and we'd go cross country riding all all around here, about 2,000 open acres and just have the best time stopping and seeing people. Mom see all her friends and and you learned how to ride because if if you didn't, you you wouldn't stay on the pony. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, then I sort of transitioned from. Uh, oh, I also had a really good show pony. I had a really good fox hunter called Queenie. I'll start choking up talking about her, and I just loved her. She she was a dark bay, medium sized, and could jump anything. Mm. And many a time, I went into a fence and didn't and didn't, wasn't sure if I wanted to jump it, and Queenie would jump it. She was quiet. Then I had a really flashy black show pony called Twinkle, and she just would get the ribbons as soon as she walked in the ring. And uh, it really taught me how to ride because she was a little rank. She had an Arabian head and was kind of nervous, and she'd go in the ring, and she would be right on the edge the whole time, just wanted to go faster and faster. And uh, about that time, when I was about 15, I transitioned into riding horses, and I started riding at the racetrack with my father galloping racehorses at, at major tracks up and down the east coast and a lot of Pimlico and Delaware Park and Belmont Park and a, there's a lot about Saratoga in my three books the most beautiful track in America and perhaps the most successful and I used to actually I used to ride my ponies all around the tracks at Saratoga when I was a kid that was really fun oh, I can imagine and then then when I was 15 or so I started riding uh, racehorses and, and by the time I was 17 I started riding races Wow. And, and it, you know, we, we should mention that your father is uh, the legendary steeplechase jockey, A.P. Smithick. So right. you, have, you have horses in your blood and you are lucky to grow up with them. Both your mother and your father love horses and racing on the Saratoga track as a young person. Like, I can't, what, what feelings did you, did you have having that experience? We, I had this great friend and I write about it. And I just loved him. His name was Mike White and he had a pony too. And when we were about 14 or so, we would get in so much trouble because here all these trainers are training these, you know, hundred thousand dollar horses and getting ready for the races. And we'd tack up our ponies and we'd go out on the track and race all around. And then we'd go in the infield and jump fences and and uh, people would be saying, hey, what are you doing? But uh, we just had the best time. And, and everyone, the racetrack then was sort of like a big club. Everybody knew everybody and we we're all in it together. And they would all laugh. And uh, sometimes I'd go with the pony with the racehorses on a big pony to help take care of the racehorses. And then about the next year when I turned 15 or 15, then I started actually getting on the horses. Mm. But uh and then that was, you know, that was down to work because then my father started training. He had a lot of really rank, difficult to train horses. He was known as being a specialist for that. And we'd get these horses that basically no one, no one could even get out of the barn or tack up or get on or, and they, they were pretty rough sometimes. And then that, that's how I really learned how to ride was riding those horses. I can only imagine. I mean, it, it, I'm sure it taught you a lot about life in general, having to work with difficult horses and finding ways to manage them, <laughs> which yeah. 
which we're going to get into here um, deeper as we talk about your books about these experiences that enriched your life. But first, I want to talk a little bit. We, we opened with Marilyn and, you know, your history with horses. You currently still have horses and you actually live on the horse farm where you were raised in Moncton, Maryland. So, so will you tell us about living on your farm and your herd and a little bit about your family? And then we'll get into the good stuff and talk about your books. <laughs> sure. When um, my mother died in uh, 2012, and then I, I took over the farm from my two sisters. And when I first came here, I had a contract for a, a book. It was a pretty good contract, a history of a hospital. And there was nowhere to work in the house because everything was under construction. And, and uh, I kept on going in the house and trying to find a desk and a, a place where I could write. And my daughter was about 88 at the time. And she said, Dad, you like it so much out in the barn. Why don't you just work out in the barn? <laughs> so, so this where I am right now, this was an old milking parlor. And it was just, then when I was a kid, it was a shed, just a shed for horses and ponies would come in and out. And so I, I refurbished this room and started working right here. And it's so much fun. I'm in the barn, which was one of my favorite places of my life when I was a, when I was a child. And above me is the huge hayloft. The barn was built in the pre-Civil War times. And up in the hayloft, there was this secret room I had, and we turned it into the Cuckoo Lily Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my first book, really. I wrote a rules book. I I was the self-proclaimed um, president of the Kukulele Club, of course. And I'd been reading, uh, I can look at the tree right now, right outside the window where I built a huge tree house. I loved building tree houses. And I pulled the rope ladder up and I read Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, one of my big, biggest influences out there. And uh, I can I remember it so well. And then I, we also, so then we started the Kukulele Club and I had uh, all my best friends were in it. And we had a rules book, which was about 10, 15 pages long that included all the initiation rites that you had to perform. <laughs> you had to swim around our pond, which is only about a mile away. You had to swim around a little island with no clothes on, skinny dip, and it was uh, for boys, and it was filled with snapping turtles. <laughs> so that took some nerve. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I love I love working here. And then when I came back here in 2012, really is when I finished off uh, one of my books, and I found diaries of my mother's and my father's, and I felt so grounded being here on this soil where I I can just walk around the farm and I know every square inch. Here's where I rode this horse. Here's where the pony jumped the stream. So I love being here. And my father also had racehorses here when he was training. He had about 10 horses just in light work here. And then we'd have the, the horses in really racing and strong work at a racetrack like Delaware Park, Pimlico, Belmont Park, Saratoga. And then also when I was a kid, my mother had a lot of ponies here and some show horses. So it has a, it has a lot of memories. And I had two sisters. They grew up riding. They didn't like it quite as much as I did. Well, when I was a teenager, then I started doing everything with my father, going to work with him, going everywhere with him. It was kind of like a 18th century upbringing that people don't have now where you can go to work with your father and you meet all his friends. And his friends were these incredible people. Quite a few of them, about half a dozen of them, all ended up in the Hall of Fame. There I was, a little boy, listening to their stories. And so I think that's where I got the love of storytelling in a lot of ways two sons and my daughter are grown up. 
So I live here with my wife and I have two horses out there. I have a retired steeplechase horse, Riderwood, who was the quietest horse I've ever had in my life. And he's just a wonderful horse to ride. He's shedding right now. And then, <laughs> and then I have another horse that was given to me by a great friend, J.B. Secor, whose nickname was the Lear Jet. And he was a really, really fast horse on the, uh, on the racetrack. He, he ran in 75 races and won 50 of them. Almost like a quarter horse. He loved going five-eighths of a mile, maybe three-quarters, but he's really fast. So I'm still teaching him how to quiet down because all he knows how to do is gallop fast or walk. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of what they're trained to do, right? <laughs> yeah. And actually, the, the beginning of my book, Racing Time, that just came out, and uh, we launched that at Saratoga the day of my father's memorial race. It was a very emotional day. There is a $150,000 memorial race in honor of my father at the beginning of the Saratoga meet, which is at the early August. And right after the race, we all walked over to the Saratoga Racing Hall of Fame, and I launched the book that day and gave a talk and a reading, and it was a lot of fun. But I was also going to say, I'm looking out the window at the prologue of the book in a way, and I'm looking at the stream because the book starts with an allusion to the myth, myth of Sisyphus, and I'm, I, have to, I have to dig up the stream every spring by hand, and that's the beginning of the, of the book. And so a lot of that book, a lot of it is about working on the farm and what place means. And I, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing some. I'm, I'm envious of your writing barn. It, it sounds like <laughs> the most perfect place to write, but also your books are memoir what a perfect way to be able to reflect on your life and right from the place where so much of it happened and circulated. So, you know, I really feel like this is a perfect opening. You've already mentioned a little bit about your most recent book, Racing Time. Would you talk to us a little bit and walk us through the three books and maybe hold up the covers, the beautiful covers, while you talk about them? These are my father's spurs. <laughs> and, and the people are listening. Carly uh, talks about jingling her spurs, and I have some spurs that steeplechase jockeys used to use, and they just have little dimes in them. They don't have the rowels are made of dimes. And and these are my father's, and I used them myself. They're very special to me. This is the uh, first book that I wrote in the memoir, Racing My Father. And it's all about growing up with my father. That's that's I won my first race right there. And that's my father. I still ride in that tack, in that saddle. And I wore that helmet yesterday when I was riding. It is getting a little old. And then I still have that belt that he's wearing. And I use these binoculars of my father's. But as I tell you, this is kind of a fun picture because I was only about 17 years old. And I, I rode this horse who was, who was pulled really hard. And we were going in the timber race, about three miles. And it was a very, very fast race riding against professionals. I was only 17. And so from the, um, I sent you a photograph of him, the third fence from home, I let him loose and he started, started going at the second fence from home. After the horses jumped the fence, my father got so excited watching the race that he ran out on the course and jumped the last two fences on foot <laughs> and ripped his pants. You can see right here. So that, this book brings back great memories and it's about being brought up in a very different kind of lifestyle. The racetrack was pretty wild back then, and uh, it was very, it was a hard drinking kind of place. It was a men's kind of club. You know, after the races, you'd go sit in the pub and have a cold beer, or after work in the morning. And everybody loved my father. He was he just something very special about him. So I I had a lot of fun with that. 
with writing that book, that memoir. And then I wrote this book, which is called Flying Change, which is uh, based on a poem by Henry Taylor, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet. That's a fence at the Maryland Hunt Cup right there. That actually is me sitting on it. And I uh, had a photographer take that to my neighbor. He's a professional photographer. And we thought, well, you might as well use that. We, we decided with this book, I decided at about the age of 50, my father died at a young age of 47. For some reason, I turned 47. And I thought, oh, I had a job. I had a wife and three kids. Everything was going along very well. I thought, so I'm getting a little flat here. Why not start riding races again? Great idea. <laughs> so I, I lost 10 pounds, had to get really fit, started riding every single day before work. I had a tough job then as a director of publications of a school. My best friend, Tom Voss, had some really good horses, and I started riding his horses. And in, in this book, I end up riding in the, in the toughest steeplechase race in the, in the country, maybe the world, the Maryland Hunt Cup, on that horse called Florida Law. So the first book is about uh, being a son and looking at my father and actually a lot about my mother. And then this book, Flying Change, is about trying to do all this and being the father and also directing my attention to my own three children, Eliza, Patty, and Andrew. So this one won an award, the Dr. Tony Ryan a Literary Award. Recently, most recently, I wrote this book, Racing Time, and looking at the cover, I worked very closely with the, I met this incredible artist, Sam Robinson, and I started coming up with this idea of having paintings, illustrations. At first, I wanted to do sketches. And then I, I sent him the manuscript and I said, can you think of some good images? And we started working on it and it evolved into oil paintings. They're, they're about uh, two feet by, well, about two and a half feet by two feet. This is a, this is a really big oil painting now that we have above our fireplace illustration. Each illustration coincides or is in a section of the book directly across from where the action takes place. Mm. But this book was very difficult to write because you can see it's Racing Time, a memoir of love, loss, and liberation. It was uh, sparked by the uh, death of my best friend, Tom Voss, who I grew up with. He's in both the other books. He was like a brother to me. And my father was very much like a father to him when he grew up and he he uh, learned much of his horsemanship from my father. I was hit that year in 2014 with a couple of other friends left us. I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. It was a very difficult straitjacket to be in to, to try to write about all this because in some ways you're writing about a subject of death that people don't wanna hear about. And so I had to work really hard on it to make it something that people would wanna read. And it's actually a, sort of a love story about my love and camaraderie with uh, Tom Speedy Canal, who is a, a part African-American, a part Cherokee, and uh, was he was an incredible horse whisperer type guy. He was also an unbelievable singer. Uh, he warmed up for Marvin Gaye, and Marvin Gaye couldn't stand him because the people would applaud so much and didn't want him to leave the stage. And he was also a boxer. And so when I grew up, he was like, Speedy was an idol of mine. He kind of, he had the style of Sugar Ray Leonard in the, in the boxing ring. And then the third man is Dickie Small. He was an incredible uh, trainer of flat horses. He was a Vietnam veteran, was a Green Beret, and a very influential character in my life. So, and racing time has a double meaning. Each of my titles has a double meaning. Racing my father. 
is about sort of racing with my father, but then also racing against my father, right? Like for quite a while, I was judging myself and racing against him here. He was in the Hall of Fame. He had this incredible success when he was, you know, 24 years old. He's one of the best riders in the world. And then flying change is about, well, you know what a flying change is when a horse Mm -hmm. does a flying change. And that's what the Henry Taylor's poem is about. And it's about making this flying change in my life, all of a sudden doing a flying change and going back into racing. But then in the end, I go, I do a flying change and sort of duck back out of it. (laughs) A lot of people miss that one. I do these figure eights with my daughter, Eliza, and I try to push that image at the end of the book. And we're doing flying changes uh, in the figure eights, you know, pretending we're riding ponies, skipping. I kind of decide that I want to devote my attention more to my kids and my family, not get totally immersed in being a jockey again. Racing time is about racing. It is racing time now. Let's go. It's time to get going. And it's also about us baby boomers. Uh, you know, we are racing time. It also has two chapters I really like where in the book, I happened at the same time to lose a horse I really loved. Mm. And uh, he died actually right outside the office, just in the field, about four feet from here with his head in my lap. Great illustration of it. It's one of my favorite ones. He is perfectly healthy until that one day. Uh, that was it. His name was Warfield. And that book is, uh, I'm pushing that and I'm marketing that and it's doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and I want to say thank you too. Your publisher was so generous to send me a copy. Oh, so I'm excited to have it. It's a beautiful book and the, you're, you're correct. The paintings are gorgeous and your writing is just stellar. You write from a very, very personal place about your life and your experiences with horses. And you've had a very obviously interesting life definitely something that people don't have many people don't have the opportunity to experience why did you decide to go into memoir if when i let's see when i was at johns hopkins i used to get up at 5 30 in the morning go to pimlico gallop horses for three hours and then i go to hopkins and i graduated from hopkins i thought this is it i'm leaving the world of horses i spent all my life thinking i'm leaving and i never and i do it for about two minutes and come back <laughs> and i wanted to go into newspaper work that was at the height of the watergate era kind of thing journalism was really big woodward and bernstein the newspapers were very powerful. You know, the Sunday paper weighed about five pounds. And I did. I went to work for some small newspapers and I just had a ball. But while I was working at the newspapers, the uh, first one I worked for, the editor left after about two months. And I was I was about two months out of college and I became the editor. And I was only 21 years old and it, and it was pretty wild. Anyway, but at that time, on my own, I was writing some fiction, some short stories that usually had to do with the horse world, what was closest to my heart, really. My journalism was about everything you write about in in, uh, journalism. Also, I I focused quite a bit on the Chesapeake Bay and on the Waterman. So then I I was doing the journalism. I started writing some pieces, uh, short stories that were very autobiographical. And the first one I wrote was actually I was at Hopkins. And my father had a really bad fall in a hurdle race and had to stop riding. And it was a a blow to our family. And I wrote it as kind of a love story to him as a wonderful memory of, because I was with him the last day he had to fall. And it's it's all about getting up and going to work with him and doing all the little things and going to the races. What he used to have to do to lose weight to go to the races, he was way too big to be a jockey. (laughs) He would get, he would uh, put on thermal insulated underwear then he put on a sweatsuit then he put on corduroys and a wool and a turtleneck 
in a wool sweater and a parka and a wool hat, get in the car, usually a Ford, turn the heat up and drive 80 miles an hour to the races and lose five pounds on the way to the races. Oh my so goodness. Can, I had to do that quite a few times. And usually when he was doing it, he, he would sip on a thermos of screwdrivers on the way, which we won't tell our younger viewers what, what they are. It has something to make them a little spicier. So I wrote that piece and it was, uh, I was inspired by a piece uh, by um, Ernest Hemingway called My Old Man. One night I read this short story by Hemingway and it was about a boy whose father was a steeplechase jockey. I thought, what the heck? Hemingway, he didn't know anything about horses or steeplechasing. I got up the next morning and I wrote mine. Anyway, I sent it to a, a horse publication and I couldn't believe it. About three days later, the editor called me up all excited, and excited at night, accepted it, and said he was going to publish it in the August issue, which is when Saratoga is, which is the biggest time to be published in horse racing. I thought, well, this is looking pretty good, this writing business. <laughs> I didn't know that it wasn't all going to be like that from then on. So then I'm in and out of uh, uh, journalism, and I, and I went into teaching. And as I went into teaching, and I went to Holland's University, and at Holland's University, their graduate program, I was writing short stories, and they encouraged me to write a novel. And I did write uh, short stories for about for about five or 10 years. And I would send them out to all the magazines with the S-A-S-E, you know, self-addressed stamped envelope, hoping they never send it back. <laughs> and they're very autobiographical. Then after a while, I started thinking, you know, I don't really need to fictionalize the my life. And I started reading uh, the memoir. And I read uh, Growing Up by Russell Baker, uh, West with the Night by Burl Markham, many other memoirs that I really enjoyed some Montaigne's pieces. And I started becoming very interested in the memoir and ha what you could do with it. Then that got me going and, and, and writing the first one, which is Racing My Father. I think the memoir is very interesting. And sometimes I get so frustrated and I, you know, I think, oh, God, I wish this was fiction because the memoir puts you in this incredible straitjacket. You have this great story to tell, but then this, in real life, such and such happens here. And it's like, well, that's no good. <laughs> that's not what I want. And then you have to kind of write around it. But it puts you in a, it puts you in a, a, a form that, uh, that you have to use because you have to rely on what really happened. And I think you can tell a lot about life and, and you're by writing about yourself, which you know, but actually writing about is yourself. You can be the, cent the uh, protagonist the, or the narrator. Mm -hmm. But you could be writing about everybody else, which in racing time is is what I try to do. Mm -hmm. And 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 you write it in such a way that it does it reads as if it could be fiction. It reads like uh, a novel, like a story. That's a good point. That's why I wish I'd mentioned that, and I'm glad you did. You're sharp, Carly. <laughs> Thanks. I try. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I think of them. Is well because I taught literature for so long, and I also taught it to adults, and I've taught at the universe at the university level, and high school students that are going on to Harvard and Princeton and Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I've taught, that's how I've learned so much of the literature that I know. And so I consider, I use all, all the techniques a novelist uses. So I consider my memoirs nonfiction novels. Mm -hmm. And I kind of structure them that way, take the real events and try to turn it into something very similar to a novel.
Mm-hmm. And it, it, it certainly reads like that. And so all your all your experience, all your background, I'm sure helps develop that. I mean, you're, you're a teacher, you're, you've written for newspapers, you're an editor, and then you have this rich history with horses. It's just magical. It's a magical combination. <laughs> yeah, I never knew that it would work out that way, but it, it, it does come together pretty well. In this book, Flying Change, you bring up the subject because you could also be a Freudian psychologist. Is this book is a lot about integrating my interests mm. and saying I can I can write, I can ride, I don't have to always do one or the other. I think in my education when I was brought up in high school, it made it seem like, you know, you just did this one thing. Mm-hmm. So the book is a lot about bringing my different interests together. I love that. I mean, you created your space in the world rather than, you know, fitting yourself into a slot. You said, this is who I'm going to be. And you embraced it and you wrote about it and you made it. That's so beautiful. The ride has been a little bit wild, but thank you very much. I think that's the thing though, too, about creating your own place in the world is it can can get a little messy, but aren't you more happy living in this space rather than doing something that you think you're supposed to be doing that just that one thing aren't you much more happy having this breadth of experience and and having created something that is 100% your own yes yes I definitely am I love that your your memoir reads as if it were a nonfiction novel like you said so living on the farm where where you grew up and a lot of these memories happen I'm sure helps you helps you write are there are there any other ways that you uh, capture moments in time to put into your memoir I'm like I'm sure your your style has kind of changed from the first one to the third one you know and we always grow stronger as we write our books do you journal uh do you like take notes like how, how do you kind of capture moments uh that you know that you want to put into your memoir actually remember I talked about this first uh when I was in college I published uh, two short stories one mm-hmm. one about my father and another one called the old horseman about a groom that I just loved. And it's, and it's a very intense piece about him, uh, Emmett Grayson. Oh, and then I, I published another short story, I forgot about this, and that I loved called A Leg Up. And it's about when my father was uh, in his late 40s and then he got cancer and he was weak and he was ill. And he also from the fall lost about 20% of his use of his left side. And we had this wild, crazy horse called Totem Home. And no one could school him. And one day this young rider got on him and then he and it fell off and he couldn't get him to jump. And the rider fell off and hit the horse across the face with the whip. Well, that was the last straw. My father, my father ran over and uh, grabbed the, jo- the jockey and threw him away from the horse. And then I thought he was going to give me a leg up on the horse. And then he got up on the horse himself. Oh, wow. Jumped the horse over the three hurdles better than anyone on the farm had done. And it was just this beautiful, very emotional experience. And that also found its way into the book. So, Ray, so you can see those were pieces I've been working on, and I didn't know that they would become a book one day. In Flying Change, when I was doing, when I was tra- in training to ride and thinking about riding and losing weight and getting fit and wondering, you know, there's always this self-doubt. Could I do it? Do I really want to do it? I'm putting myself in a little bit of danger here. I, I, did, I did get up early in the morning and I kept a racing journal about a lot of it. And I just, I didn't know that if I would use it or how I would use it or what would become of it, but I just wanted to get it down on paper. Uh, racing time, one, there's one long section in there that I, that I wanted to be, have published as magazine piece, a section on Pimlico. 
but I never got around to sending it to the magazines because it was 80 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, part of the book is I had to give the three eulogies to the three people, the three men in that one year. So I used those. And then uh, when my horse Warfield died suddenly in the field, I just had to write about that. I, that's a good example. I knew I wanted to write what was in my emotions and what I felt. And I wanted to, in that piece, I wanted to try to get inside a horse's head. And how did he know me or did he know me? And, and what do horses feel for a human? What do they know? What do they feel? And I try to do that. And when those kind of things come up, I just throw everything aside and, you know, the guests can be here, people can be visiting or whatever. And I just come out and, and do it first draft fast get it done throughout racing time that that year i did write quite a bit in my journal sort of just, just to keep myself sane and i wrote my best friend tom after he died letters i wrote him about mm. 50 letters probably and i'd be in here just having a ball writing him a letter and then, then i'd get kind of serious and how about this and why didn't we do that i wish we'd done this what do you think about this and it was this surreal, almost hallucinogenic experience, but I just kept rolling with it because it seemed like that's what I needed to do. Yeah. And and then I used some of those in the book. I'm always writing, and uh, I do like to uh, write in journals. And before, in my earlier years, I can look across the office here, and I have a whole trunk of journals that I kept, pages and pages, when I was teaching and, and doing other things. That's beautiful. I mean, and, and what I'm hearing in there a little bit is that you kind of follow the muse. Like when something when something spurs up for you, you kind of follow where it wants to take you, and you don't put any limitations on it. Like the letters to your to your friend that had passed, and you're like, "This is what is calling me forward." So I'm just going to kind of go with it. Uh, would you? Yeah. Is that sort of what's going on there? That's a good point. And I definitely didn't tell anybody. <laughs> they said, Patrick, maybe you need to go talk to somebody. <laughs> but uh, I didn't tell anyone. I just came in and did it. And I communicated with Tom and I felt like I was communicating with him and I was communicating with him. And I think that's exactly right. I'm working on a book now that's where I'm doing that with racing time in particular. When uh different things happened would would get it on paper early the next morning at the time I was t working as a middle school teacher <laughs> so which I loved and I've taught all kinds of uh, grades but I think middle schoolers should should run the world they're the healthiest the strongest the bravest the most independent and they absolutely have more energy than any other age group in, in the world so I was teaching them and even though it's going through these tough times as soon as I got to school guess what you had to wake up and and you know, get on that horse and, and ride. So, but I'd come out here in the morning, and for about an hour before I go in there, I'd just uh, sort of sit down and just write. And it wasn't necessarily organized, but just get it on the page. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, very actually healing too for for people to to go through that when they're experiencing something difficult to kind of process to to just get that emotion out and and put it on the page. So. I, I don't. I don't. Th I don't think you need. I don't think you needed any counseling there. I think you were actually counseling yourself and, and working your way through that, and then you were able to process all that emotion. But then it became like a gift and a book that you are sharing yeah. with with your readers too. So I think that's a beautiful way to do it. I have to. I have to mention that the uh, then it was interesting structuring the book because you can't just start off with some mm. uh, with some the really tough stuff. 
you can, but I wanted the reader to keep reading. <laughs> so <laughs> there are a lot of, the, the book is a celebration of the relationships. And, and it also had a lot of fun remembering the really great times. And I put those on the page. I really celebrated each of the individuals and the, and mainly two horses and the best times I had with them. And uh, so it's, it's very much a, a toast to them and, and the great times we had. And there's a lot of fun and, and it's some humor. Also, it worked out well being a middle school teacher because I included some of that and you can't help but get that energy and the, and the fun and the zest for life that the middle schoolers have. <laughs> and that's a, that's a great point that you make there. I, you know, when you are writing memoir it's it's your own story but then you also have to be thoughtful for your reader right and how you put your your book together because it you wanted to tell that story but you also want it to be is set up in a way that makes them want to read forward so that that's actually very smart thinking right because it's it's your life of you about you but it's for your readers so that that's really smart to think of it that way that's what i learned for other writers on a, each of these books at first, I was sort of doing them chronologically, and and I, but my the, one of my favorite kind of chapters would be the third or fourth one in. Then finally, I decided with each of them, I thought, you know, there's no reason I can't just take this chapter with flying change, take this chapter and put it right in the beginning, <laughs> and and I can use that at the beginning. The reader can read that, and then we can drop back and and start later, and so you can still shift time around so that it's uh, the reader wants to keep going and, and so it all comes together in one artistic whole. Mm -hmm. So you have some freedom. It doesn't have to be set up chronologically. You can move things around and, and you can still engage the reader and then you can use what, you can do it how you want, right? You have, you right. have the opportunity to do that. That was a huge uh, load off my back when I figured that out. It doesn't, doesn't seem like it would be that difficult to come up with that concept, but then I did and I thought, Great. Now I can start it where I want to start it. <laughs> and that's great. I got to talk about the book designer, uh, Jerry Valerio. I wrote The History of Gilman School, a book I'm extremely proud of. And I worked with uh, the great historian Walter Lord on, on that book. And I met uh, Jerry Valerio, who is a book designer, has designed over 500 books. So on the, my latest book, the publisher had a book designer and they showed me what they're going to do. And I thought, oh my. <laughs> I don't like this too much. And I called up Jerry and I pretty much got him out of retirement. And uh, he worked really hard on this and put his soul into it. And I worked hand in hand with him. And, and we had some arguments and disagreements because he's very strong minded, having, mm -hmm. having done 500 successful books. It's a lot of the look of the book, not a lot, most, almost all of the look of the book is from Jerry. And it also helps. He's a portrait painter painter and he knows horses he likes to paint horses mm. so he had to pick out the kind of paper you want to use in a book where you have the you know copy and the paper and i wanted him to be i wanted it to be legible to read the copy plus you want it to be also the artwork kind of pops mm -hmm. so i worked very closely with the artists and then the poor publisher wayne dementi he had to work with me with the artist sam robinson and with the designer of the book, the book designer, who's also an artist. So we all had our <laughs> angles. And Wayne Dementi of Dementi Milestone did a fantastic job of sort of staying out of the ring, being the referee and making sure we just kept going forward. 
and we put it together in, in a record time because I wanted it to be ready in the late spring. We wanted it to be ready for Saratoga, and we had to push it pretty hard to, for a couple of months. And that's a great point that you make right there, too, that timing of releasing of a book, particularly is around a big event or, or a big racetrack opening or something like that. Timing of the release of a book is very important on a publicity side of things. So that's why you were pushing for that. Is, is that right? Exactly. And a lot, some of it was for emotional reasons and I guess you could say sentimental, but but also it was just an intuitive feeling that uh, I wanted to launch it uh, right then at uh, Saratoga, right after my father's race. And it was the most glorious time because my best friends, some of them have nothing to do with horses, all came up. Some of them had never even been to Saratoga. And I sort of had, you know, I had the whole team there. And then I've neglected to say that most of the book is about Tom Voss and my relationship with him. And he had been put in the Hall of Fame just a year earlier. So when I got there in the Hall of Fame, it's where my father is. My uncle is there. Tom was there. It was a good time to do it. Also, for as far as discussing marketing, when you're at Saratoga, then you have a chance of being in, in the national press because the national press is there covering the racing. It just makes so much so much sense. Like you just really thought thought through how how and when you wanted to publish this book and then with the the cover design and working with your chosen designer for the entire book how did you approach your publisher and say I'm going to take the reins on this or <laughs> did you just have that kind of relationship or like you know how, how did you manage that conversation <laughs> <laughs> well luckily I worked at at, a, at, two, at Gilman School as a director of publications and I and I there I was very used to uh, working with designers and with magazines mm -hmm. and actually newspaper people, but putting out the publications and working with my own designer. And I got to you know I wasn't uh, shy about telling the designers no, this isn't mm -hmm. what we want. So I was kind of used to doing that. And, and uh, I'm not sure if Wayne was used to having a writer like me, <laughs> right? Uh, but he actually once I kind of said I want to do this, I think he kind of liked it and we used his his uh, printer mm -hmm. and uh, he and as soon as we got it all ready we went to his printer and they did a fantastic job it was very tough to print the, the illustrations just right and then he put it all through you know some publishers would probably rather just have it go through their own process mm -hmm. but i but i think he sort of caught the energy that sam had the painter and that jerry had and i had and we just pushed it really hard so you had a you had a conversation that inspired him to let you do that. Plus, you had the experience in the background, and you actually came with the resource, the person to design the cover. That's a pretty right. compelling pitch. And it was so great to have someone and and you know who he knew me and I knew him, and we both mm -hmm. trusted each other. Mm -hmm. That's so important in, in creative relationships. It's always important to have that that trust for sure to to bring forth the very best, beautiful representation of of the words that you spent. You know, how long how long does it usually take you to write a book? <laughs> oh, the first when Racing My Father came out, uh, someone asked that at a book signing and my friend Tom Voss was sitting there at the signing. And uh, someone asked that he actually was pretending he was me and was signing my books. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good friend. <laughs> the, signing wasn't, the signing wasn't going well at first and he started signing the books and all these people came over and they asked him, and they asked him how long it took to write that book. And he said, all my life. <laughs> uh, but because mm -hmm. that book did have 
it had pieces that I had written, you know, when I was in college and all in there. But really, the composition of the book, putting it together, for if you had to say an average time, would be about five years, because I was working full time. Most of the time, I was finishing one book and trying and sending that out to to publishers and getting it rejected over and over and changing it, getting it rejected and changing it, working on it, trying to get a publisher. At the same time, I was starting another book. So it's sort of a wave. That's how a lot, I, I believe a lot of writers are. They have a their full-time job and then they have, you know, their, their passion, which is the writing. So speaking to that, do you have like a writing routine while you were working? Like, did you set up a routine for yourself to, to help that happen? I kind of fell into one by necessity. I learned this from a, a, the, the husband of Ann Tyler, the, the Maryland uh, novelist. And he used to, Tagi Motorasi, he was a doctor. And, and I interviewed him once. He used to get up before every morning and write before he went to the office. It was a natural for me because uh, all my life I'd gotten up around a quarter five in the morning to go to the racetrack and get on the first horse at 5.30 or 6. <clears throat> so when I went into the white collar world, I kind of started doing that, getting up early in the morning. Then when I wrote my first book, Gilman Voices, I really had to push it hard and do that. And I got up at 4.30 every morning and I'd write for an hour, no matter what, every day, just trying to get that book going mm-hmm. and touch on it a little bit each day. Mm-hmm. And that really helped. So now I'm not, and then when I was teaching, I did that. And now what I like to do, I still like to get up early in the morning. And my preference is if I could just get up, feed the horses, the pups, to, uh, bring my coffee up to my wife in bed Aww. and then come back out I'd like to just go right to my writing room start off in a uh, without any interruptions and I sometimes put the cell phone turn it off plus put it in my car <laughs> mm-hmm. and and don't have the computer on anything and that's how I like to uh, to compose especially first drafts and did the the routine get easier? Did it just become part of who you are as you develop that habit? Yes. And uh, newspaper work, newspaper work was uh, really good for me when I when I got out of college and when I was in college at Hopkins and all writers there and the people would labor and labor mm-hmm. over their stories and and which which I now revise I revise a lot. But when I worked on those newspapers and the editor was standing right here at my shoulder. Sometimes when I worked for the uh, afternoon paper, the uh-huh. editor was standing here. I was working on a manual typewriter in a, in a double space on sheets. And as soon as one sheet came out, he took it, put it in the fax machine, sent it to the <coughs> sent it to the typist, and they started typing it up and getting ready, putting it in hot type to be printed. And so I got used to deadline pressure. I try to be able to write at any time, any place, and any circumstance if I have to. Wow. Uh, I don't know if I could write with someone over my shoulder like that. I, I, I guess you could just get used to it and you, you, you adapt, right? We're adaptable. You <laughs> adapt to that. But well, what a great you know, training for, for getting the words on the page. Do you have any advice for an aspiring author of memoir? Like, What would you recommend someone try on if they, if they want to take on writing a memoir? Of course, I think it'd be interesting for them to read some, some of the classic memoirs. I loved uh, West with the Night by Burl Markham. It has uh, horses in it. It has mm-hmm. flying in it. It has Africa in it, adventure. She was such a character, such an incredible woman, and very inspiring. And, uh, and I read quite a few other memoirs, and I ended up teaching the memoir to adults and to students. There's some really good ones out there. But to, 
finally, you got to just put the ink to paper. And I think that to start with something small, like you, you don't think of a book. It's not an essay, really, but think of a story, a nonfiction short story that you want to tell and write that. Then if you want, then that goes all right. <clears throat> then you write another one. You might not do it in chronological order. You might write something about that happened to you when you're 10 years old. You might write something happened when you were 30 years old. And then you, and then you start writing these different uh, pieces and you get a feel for it. But I think the idea is to, you don't even have to think of writing a chapter, but to write that one story, which would could become a chapter and make it kind of self-sufficient. And then it's great if, if you can send that out, maybe get it published, get some reassurance. Oh, that is wonderful advice. Writing a chapter as a, as a complete story in and of itself, and then you can submit it to to papers or trying to get it published in magazines. And then that kind of becomes the basis for building your book. I, that's great advice. That probably comes in your, your course on <laughs> memoir, right? Like, yeah, I've done that. And actually, then, then if you get the book going and it gets out there, then it's good to be able to take sections out to try to promote your book and try to get the mm-hmm. magazines to publish them. And sometimes they really like it because, because uh, you know, you can't really charge them for it. <laughs> and and I say, oh, well, here's a free story. Cool. Because you're, they're promoting your book. Yeah. Or even if, uh, and so that's something great that can happen too. Yeah, that is something that's that that is super awesome. You know, take a chapter and then have that be publicity for your book. I, and it sounds like there's so many ways that you can work with a, a memoir. I have to mention my daughter Eliza now, mm. and she is my a marketing guru, my marketing czar, and does the social media in America. That's what we're relying more than ever on social media, and that's how I met you. Mm-hmm. Eliza's been very, very professional. I've been very much enjoyed working with her yeah. and uh, working with you very much. And and isn't that funny how it all kind of it's it's like a network, right? With with social media and doing some outreach to reach not only readers but also other people that are there to support and help you you grow the reach of your books. It's, it's a beautiful thing, and I I love it when authors unite and we support each other. And and I enjoy meeting and sharing the stories of other authors. Okay, so you've successfully written three beautiful memoirs and, and gone through the process. What do you wish you had known when you started out on the journey of of being an author? When I look back on it like that, and then sometimes I think. Well, I should have stayed in a newspaper work. I won a few of those awards. I was pretty good at it, and I could. And then I think, then I think about teaching. I think ah, I could have gotten a doctorate. Could have been a professor, because that was a dream for a while. Then I look at horse racing, and I think, you know, my whole family inheritance, and I could have been in that. Where I've been in a lot of different occupations. Advice I might give someone else uh, younger is go ahead and keep your steady job and, and put some money in the bank. Because <laughs> I went out on a limb many times. I thought, man, I'd be working on, I wrote two novels and, oh, this novel's going to be out in a year and I'm going to be sitting in the catbird seat <laughs> and, uh, and drop everything for a few months and I'd go back to galloping horses and leave that nice job on the newspaper or a really nice job teaching and sort of taking a chance. I think a good thing for a young writers to know is to go ahead and try to develop a good career that can very well be independent of writing and where you learn about life and meet all kinds of interesting people. And uh, you can save some money. So then you have the time and the security to write because basically writing you need, it's very difficult in this day and age. You need time, you need a place, you're not interrupted a peace of mind mm. and a, a secure job can can help you have that 
but I wouldn't have done it any other way. And uh, Henry Miller said, uh, I have a quote of his in Flying Change. He said, uh, you reach the edge, you reach the, the brink, and then you have to leap. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a, some big chances, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I did it, and that suits my personality. I think, you know, as a steeplechase jockey, I've seen all kinds of things, and, and I don't mind risk. Good advice, you know, but I also love that you wouldn't have done it any other way. I think that that is a beautiful way to say it. Patrick, I have so enjoyed having you on the show today. And, you know, I feel like we could keep talking for hours. I mean, I'm just so fascinated by you and I love your author journey. Thank you for sharing what you have today. Can you let listeners know where they can find you and your books? I can. Uh, my marketing czar, Eliza Smithick, has, has uh, put up a, a, a website that I'm very proud of. So please go to my website, patricksmithick.com. It has all kinds of photographs, articles. It has information on all three books and where you can buy the books. You can buy them right from the website. And then, of course, we're on Amazon. And uh, I've become friendly with Amazon. You can get the books there. We have a Facebook page, Racing Time, the name of the book, a Memoir of Love, Loss, and Liberation. And a good Facebook page. And Eliza, my my uh, marketing czar has me on Instagram now. <laughs> so, and then all around here within about a 700 mile range, I sometimes hop in my car and drive to tax shops and, and uh, tax shops and feed stores and leave my books there. And they actually have been the best run, some of the best run places with the best campaigns and the best signings. And then the, uh, Bookstores are having a tough time, as we know, and I try to support the local bookstores as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And my publisher has the book at bookstores all over the country, especially if they ask for it. I think that covers most of the places. And then you can come right here to my office, and many people do, and get one here, too. And I'm in Moncton, Maryland. <laughs> oh, that is so exciting. Well, and I'll be sure to link to all those places in the show notes. Uh, I'm not going to put the address to where they can come to your house in Moncton, but <laughs> if you're in Maryland, you know, maybe we can get, get people in touch with you. Thank you for the gift of your time. And I would certainly love to have you back on the show to get, again, dig maybe a little bit deeper into memoir. So well, Carly, thank you very much. You're doing a wonderful job and uh, I feel very honored to be on your show. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.